Uh, the study that we're going to embark on is a study of redemption accomplished and applied. Uh, redemption accomplished and applied was the title of a book written by John Murray, uh, who was a Presbyterian theologian. Who I'll give you a biographical sketch of, of Murray in a minute, but the book is uh, just a phenomenal work of theology. It is not uh, a, a big tome. No, it's something that's very accessible to us. Uh, and just a, a personal anecdote, I was first given this book by my pastor, Hank Rast, uh, when I was at Heritage Reformed Baptist Church in Fayetteville, Georgia. And when, I, when he first gave me the book, I, I was just beginning my serious interest in theology. And I remember running home and trying to read it, and I didn't have the foundation uh, to be able to uh, to be able to understand and and grasp it, and I thought to myself, man, I wish that there was somebody who would take this book and break it down and explain the contents of it. And I, there have been a couple st- such studies if you go online and look for them, uh, but I, I don't think one more would hurt. And I think that this book also contains some information that's really going to be helpful to our church. Uh, and so I'll say more a little bit about the book in a minute, but let me give you a biographical sketch of John Murray. Uh, John Murray was born in Scotland in 1898. Uh, he served with the Royal Highlanders in World War I, and in World War I he lost an eye in, uh, in conflict. Uh, John Murray, if you read his biography, you see a couple funny anecdotes about the fact that he only had one eye. And John Murray uh, did more reading and studying with one eye than most people will ever do with two eyes. It did not really seem to impact him very much. He, he was uh, quite the, the scholar. Uh, he received degrees from the University of Glasgow in 1923, and then he came to America where he received a degree from Princeton in 1924. Uh, believe it or not, there was a day in which Princeton, yes, that Princeton, uh, was really a robust institution for solid theological training. Men such as you know, B.B. Warfield and others uh, were associated with Princeton. Uh, John Murray actually taught systematic theology for one year at Princeton in 1929 before joining the faculty of the newly reformed Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Uh, the study of the foundings of Westminster and the OPC, the denomination, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, really are, is a fascinating study if you're like me and you enjoy church history um, because it's, a, it's modern church history. It's not something that's taking place in the 1500s, 1600s. It took place you know, less than 100 years ago, coming up on, uh, on 100 years uh, ago. And there at Westminster, John Murray worked alongside men such as Ned Stonehouse, uh, Cornelius Van Til, and of course J. Gresham Machen. And Machen was the man who, uh, I guess, more or less founded the seminary and also was, was really used in the founding of the, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Uh, J. Gresham Machen wrote a very influential book entitled Christianity and Liberalism. And really, liberalism is, a, is synonymous with modernism. He, he addresses a lot of the um, modern philosophies that crept into the church through men like Immanuel Kant and uh, Karl Barth uh, and J. Gresham Machen's work. And as a matter of fact, I think this month's issue of Table Talk magazine, 
which is Ligonier's magazine. If any of you are subscribed to that, uh, Table Talk did a, a, a piece on Machen. He was actually on the, the front cover of the magazine in the month of, uh, uh, of January. Uh, not only was Machen instrumental in, in founding the seminary, but as I already said, he pioneered the establishment of a new Presbyterian denomination, which was the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. The OPC was founded in 1937, uh, and to this day, the OPC remains a, a faithful Presbyterian denomination. Um, Presbyterians, of course, their polity is different than that of Baptists, and I'm not going to go into the polity of, of Presbyterianism, uh, but you must keep in mind that their churches are much more interconnected through their denominations than the independency that we have as Baptists. And there's strengths to that, but there's also weaknesses to that. There's strengths in that you have a mutual communion and co-interdependence amongst the churches, but the weakness is, of course, that when a denomination goes liberal, it takes all of the congregations with it, and so such was the case in the 1930s with the rise of liberalism in, in evangelical theology. And J. Gresham Machen and others founded the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC. And we as confessional Baptists, we would have uh, our differences, of course, with the OPC. Uh, but we would also share many precious truths with them. Uh, in fact, you could make the argument that we would have more in common with a robust conservative Presbyterian denomination such as the OPC than we would with some of the more liberal Arminian Baptist churches that are around. So uh, I think that a, a healthy Catholicity, when I say that I mean just a, a, a mutual understanding that we are rooted and grounded in a lot of the same truths is really healthy for us to have. Uh, so in 1937, John Murray was ordained as a minister in the OPC. Uh, later that year, J. Gresham Machen would die at only 55. J. Gresham Machen was invited to preach a series of conferences in North Dakota. Uh, his health was bad, uh, but he took, the, he took the opportunity anyways, and uh, he, he, his, he could not withstand the cold winters there in North Dakota, and he passed away at only 55. Uh, just hours before his death, he sent a telegram to John Murray. Machen and Murray were the closest of friends. And he sent a telegram to John Murray, and the telegram simply said, I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. And many people count that to be Machen's last official words, even though um, I'm sure he spoke some words before his death that were not recorded. Murray remained there at Westminster until his retirement in 1966. So Murray taught for 36 years at Westminster Theological Seminary and made just groundbreaking work in the area of systematics and so much of, of um, the 1900s and theological developments within the OPC and the broader Reformed community really can be attributed to um, the contributions of John Murray. Uh, after he retired from teaching at Westminster, he returned to Scotland. He, he throughout his life, would make frequent uh, trips to Scotland. He, he never forgot his homeland. He always had a heart for the small Presbyterian churches there in the countryside of Scotland. And when he retired from the seminary, he returned to Scotland. And uh, get this, at the, at the ripe old age of 69, he was married for the first time and became a father. 
He married uh, Valerie Knowlton at the age of 69, and they had two children together. John Murray would die in 1975 at the age of 77. Um, John Murray was a careful scholar. He was one of the preeminent theologians of the 20th century. He was a passionate preacher, and he was a devoted servant to the cause of Christ. In addition to his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, which is, uh, which is his most well-known work, he also has a very notable commentary on Romans, something he wrote later on in his ministry. He has a book on Christian ethics entitled Principles of Conduct. Murray was especially known as a very pious individual. If you read his biography, which I, I recommend to you heartily, it's written by Ian Murray. That's a name you're probably familiar with, Ian Murray, that uh, started the Banner of Truth. If you read his biography, which I did, you know, I knew I was going to be teaching on Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied, so I thought, well, I'll skim his biography so I have some biographical information. And I started reading it, and I just couldn't put it down. I, I just loved that biography. And if you read it, you'll, you'll find some very interesting anecdotes uh, about Murray's practical piety. For instance, for most of his life, he didn't drive. I mean, think about it. He was born in 1898, right? Um, and... Uh, Later on, towards the end of his tenure at Westminster, he finally got a car. And it was on a Lord's Day, and he was driving in his car with some students to a church that had asked him to preach in the evening. And they were, they were in the car, and they were on the way to church, talking theology, talking religion. And one of the students said, um, Professor Murray, I see you've got this new car. What did you pay for this car? And he said, I never discuss such things on the Lord's Day. But that was consistent all throughout his life. Uh, he, took it, he took the Lord's Day and piety on that day to be a very serious thing. Uh, you, can, you can read on in, in his biography just other examples of that sort of piety. Uh, Banner of Truth publishes his collected writings in four volumes, which it's probably the most reformed thing I've ever done. I bought the four volumes of uh, the collected writings of John Murray. Get this. I bought them from... Reverend Ian MacDonald, who lives in Glasgow, Scotland, he was selling them on the internet, and I thought, how could you not buy John Murray's writings from a Scottish Presbyterian minister who's currently in Scotland? So uh, I got those those volumes, and they've really been a, a great blessing to me. Uh, I think they're out of print right now with Banner of Truth. I'm not sure if that's, if that's the case, but uh, if you can get your hands on anything John Murray, I wholeheartedly recommend it. So let me tell you a little bit about this book. So this book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, was originally published in 1955. The first half of the book concerns the atonement of Christ, Christ's atonement. He divides the book, as the subtitle might indicate, into two parts, the accomplishment of redemption and the application of redemption. And the atonement is the accomplishment of redemption. He wrote the first half independently, the second half of the book was originally published as a series of articles in the Presbyterian Guardian, which was a magazine that the OPC put out uh, from its inception to around the 70s was the last uh, time that magazine was issued. And the second half of the book was a series of articles that were published in the magazine, which Murray, in the preface to the book, he makes note that he, he apologizes uh, for if there's any awkwardness in the, the second half of the book since he edited those articles and compiled them for, for publishing in the single volume. And the second half deals with how the atonement, the accomplishment of redemption, 
is applied to elect sinners. So we have the atonement, which is this historical event, but then the question becomes, how does this historical event apply to me in time? As I said, this is not a long book, nor is it an overly technical book. Murray did not write this book for the academy. Murray wrote this book for the church member sitting in the pew who wants a greater understanding of how God saved them. Uh, so it's an accessible volume, and it's very, very foundational. It's very foundational. You do not need to read the book to follow along with these lectures. That's, that's what I want to stress to you. Um, I know I'm talking a lot about John Murray, and I'm talking a lot about the book, but as we go along, that won't be the case. I'm not going to be teaching you the book. I'm going to be teaching you the material that the book teaches. So my goal, over however many sessions it takes us, is to teach you redemption accomplished and applied the doctrine, not redemption accomplished and applied the book. <laughs> uh, however, if you do choose to read the book, it's only going to aid in your study of this topic. But I don't expect each and every one of you to buy a copy of this book and read it. If you do, God bless you. If you don't, you will still, Lord willing, benefit from, from these sessions together. Well, if that's the case, if I'm not going to be teaching the book, then why even mention it? Why even base this study on the book? There's no question. Yes, you can teach on the doctrine of soteriology and not base it on a book. I could have come up with my own outline and curriculum. Well, let me give you a couple reasons why. This is really subsidiary to our discussion, to our topic, but I wanted to include this to you because it really hits at the heart of some things that I am firmly committed to and think that are really being lost in the church today. So why base this study on a book if I'm not actually going to teach you the book? Well, number one, sometimes a subject is treated so splendidly that it becomes very difficult to improve upon it. If I want to teach you about the doctrine of redemption and how it was accomplished in the atonement of Christ and applied through the work of the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to do a better job than John Murray. So it behooves me <laughs> to use John Murray's material and the material of others in these subjects. And here's the thing about it. Anytime a preacher or a teacher prepares a series of studies, if he's, if he's a good preacher or a good teacher, he's going to be using the material and the gleanings from other men, whether he gives credit or not. So I'm just telling you right up front that... I'm going to be teaching you redemption, accomplished, and applied, and I'm going to be leaning very heavily on the, the works of John Murray. Um, he's made just such an invaluable contribution to this subject that we would do well to lean heavily upon it. Secondly, because our church doesn't exist in a vacuum. And I think a lot of churches forget that. They think that church history began last Tuesday and it's going to end next Thursday. And uh, all of their doctrine and all of their theology just came out of thin air. But that's just not the case. I think it was John MacArthur who once said, if you believe something new, you're probably wrong. Right? And, and that's certainly true on a subject that has been so stressed, especially in reform circles, as the doctrine of salvation. Uh, if somebody comes and says, hey, I've got this brand new conception of soteriology... I would be very, very, very cautious about that. That's not to say that God can't give new insights, uh, but truth is truth, and truth doesn't change. So while we admit 
that the Holy Spirit does progressively lead the people of God into deeper understandings of the truth, we also acknowledge that there's no such thing as new truth. We are thankful that God has raised up men like John Murray to faithfully proclaim the truth, and we want to continue in that same line of faithful proclamation. Thirdly, to introduce to you and to familiarize the church with good Christian literature. Raise your hand if before you came to church tonight, you had no idea who John Murray was. Okay, that's almost everybody's hand. Well, the simple fact that I have been able to give you a biographical sketch has really been wonderful in and of itself. Because I promise you that when it comes to the doctrine of soteriology, uh, John Murray knows a whole lot more about it than I do. So if I can do nothing more than simply shed light on the works of Murray... I will have done you a great service. So I want to introduce you and familiarize you with good Christian literature. Fourthly, and finally, I'm basing this study heavily upon a book to foster a sense of scholarship within the church. To foster a sense of scholarship within the church. God has not reserved the truth of his word to an exclusive and elite group of Christians. With diligence and determination... Any Christian can search the scriptures and access an abundance of resources to grow in their knowledge of the things of God. I I want to stress that to you. There is a sense in which, yes, pastors and teachers are especially gifted in the areas of theology and the areas of understanding, but we're not Roman Catholics. We don't believe that truth is exclusive to one specific category of Christians And the only way for you to get truth is to uh, learn it from some priest or learn it from some pope. You can go to a Christian bookstore or online and you can buy a copy of Redemption Accomplished and Applied and you can sit at your table and you can open your Bible and you can open John Murray and you you can let John Murray shed light upon the Word of God and you can let the Spirit of God reveal truth to you and as he uses... Uh, faithful men and, uh, and scholars to expound upon the truths of God. So uh, I want you to understand that. I want you to understand that if there's some topic or some, some uh, theological concept that you want to go deeper into, there, there's no limitations on that. And if you need some pointers and references and works, uh, feel free to ask, and we'll, we'll see what we can do to point you in the right direction. Uh, and and that's, that's such a precious truth. It really is such a precious truth. Uh, so that's why I'm heavily basing it upon the book. If you do buy the book and you do read the book, phenomenal. If not, that's, that's quite all right as well. Um, I, I, I want to read from the foreword to the 2015 edition, which was written by Carl Truman. Carl Truman's a, a, another scholar that you should familiarize yourself. What was the title of the book that he, he wrote? Scott, I think he read it. That's it. Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which was just a phenomenal work. Really kind of a more, I guess you could say, a more theological look into some of the contemporary issues with critical theory that are going on in our day. Uh, but Carl Truman, who was later a professor at uh, Westminster uh, and a minister in the OPC, Carl Truman uh, said this in his foreword to the 2015 reprinting of this book. He says, What Murray did, and what I had never really uh, seen before, was demonstrate how my salvation connected to the work of God in both eternity 
as he planned salvation, and time as he executed it in the person and work of his Son, and applied it to individuals through the work of his Holy Spirit. Thus, Murray's little book did three things of major importance. It showed how eternity and time relate to each other in salvation, how that salvation is a Trinitarian matter rooted in the very identity of God as Trinity, and how this makes sense of the whole Bible. Carl Truman, by the way, said that this was one of the first books that he read after being converted to Christ. And he said that when he got the book, that was predated internet shopping, so he went to a Christian bookstore and they ordered the book for him, and he was disappointed when he saw how small it was. So he was hoping that it would be, you know, this big book that would open up the gospel in all of its glorious splendor. And he saw it and he thought, no way, this little tiny book. But he says in the foreword, after I read it, I was not disappointed. I'm pointing that out to you because uh, I know that this is a different study than a lot of the things we do on Wednesday nights, and I don't want you to be intimidated, and I don't want you to think, oh, we're going to embark on this deep theological um, series that that's not going to be of any practical value to me, and I'm not going to understand half of it. That's not the case. I do want to introduce you to theological terms and concepts. I, I guarantee you you're going to hear words that you don't understand and concepts that you've never been confronted with before. But we're going to break all of that down. And if you have questions at the end, you're going to ask them, and we're going to explain everything. But the reason why I wanted to bring this study... Uh, and, and this is the last thing I'll say before I jump into an introduction of the material itself. The reason why I wanted to bring this study is because I know that one of the things that makes our church so distinct in West Tennessee is our firm conviction on the sovereignty of God in salvation. Amen. However, even within Calvinistic churches, we know that God is sovereign over salvation, but we might not be able to really understand how that plays out practically. And what we're going to look at in this study is how the sovereign salvation that God has wrought about in your life breaks down and can be understood. And the more you understand it, the more you'll be caused to worship God for His grace in redeeming you. So with that said, let me get into the prolegomena. There's your first word, prolegomena. If, you, if ever you pick up a systematic theology, the first section will always be the prolegomena. Simply just a fancy word for introduction. So it's the introduction to the study of redemption accomplished and applied. Uh, redemption accomplished and applied is a subset. It falls under the systematic discipline of soteriology. Soteriology. And soteriology, uh, you see two words in this. You see soteriology which is the Greek word for Savior, and you see ology, or logos, which is the Greek word for word, but not just word, really denotes the concept or the meaning. Or uh, This morning when I was teaching the Haitians, there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5 or 6, um, where Paul says, you, you, you did not lack in utterance or in knowledge. Well, the word he uses for utterance is actually the word logos, uh, to proclaim the truth and to, to teach the truth. So soteriology is the truth of salvation, the doctrine of salvation, soteriology. And uh, the study of redemption accomplished and applied is therefore a study of how God saves his people. 
The Bible declares in Jonah 2.9 that salvation is of the Lord. Therefore, the plan of salvation is designed, orchestrated, and executed by God. It is an eternal plan that is realized in history, and God is totally sovereign over both its design and its realization. Before the foundations of the world, God ordained all the details for the salvation of his people. And along each step of the way, God was continuously sovereign over the execution of that eternal plan. Now, I want to make a point of clarification. This phrase, the plan of salvation, has been often abused and misunderstood. Some will speak of the plan of salvation as things that sinners must do to be saved. You will hear some people say, the plan of salvation is admit, believe, confess. Or the plan of salvation is, uh, you know, invite the Lord into your heart. That's the plan of salvation. And what they mean by that are, these are the, these are the, the things that fall upon the responsibility of man. Okay? When we say that God is sovereign over salvation, we are not saying that man, sinful man, has no responsibility whatsoever to seek the Lord, to repent of his sin, and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what we're saying is that repentance and faith and seeking the Lord are ultimately gifts of God that God sovereignly bestows. And so, yes, they would fall within the plan of salvation, but it's God's plan, not man's plan. So if you say that, well, in order for man to be saved, he must repent and he must believe, yes and amen, but who's the one that made those stipulations? It's God that made those stipulations. God, and and we'll get into this as we go along in in our study of redemption applied, uh, but God, in his all-wise providence, saw fit to use the instrumentality of faith as the means of saving you, right? So it's still part of God's plan. In other words, I don't want you to think of salvation as here's what God does, here's God's part, and here's my part. And if God does his part, and if I do my part, then I'll be saved. I don't want you to think of salvation that way. I want you to think of salvation as the 100% complete and total work of God, but yet you, as a reasonable soul, uh, as a free agent, have been given the gifts, have been sought by God, have been regenerated, and have been called to participate in this work of salvation. Okay? So, uh, that's what we need to understand when we talk about the plan of salvation. We don't want to have a view uh, of salvation that's man-centered, in which God is not actually the effective agent of salvation, but salvation is dependent on man in any way, shape, or form. If salvation is in any way, shape, or form dependent upon man, then God is not sovereign over it. That's true both personally, uh, but that's also true in the... Uh, accomplishment of redemption as well. What, am I, what do I mean by that? Well, there was a debate 
a couple of years ago, it might have even been longer than that, but it was around a decade or so ago, um, between a Calvinist and a semi-Pelagian on the accomplishment of salvation. And the Calvinist pressed the semi-Pelagian on the events surrounding the crucifixion of Christ. Which all Christians would agree that the crucifixion of Christ is the accomplishment of salvation, right? And the question was, was God sovereign over the crucifixion? And the semi-Pelagian, in order to be consistent, had to admit that the crucifixion of Christ was not exhaustively planned or decreed by God. But when God saw in heaven that the Greeks and the Romans and the Jews were stirred up in anger against Christ and they were going to crucify him, God looked down upon that and he said, Oh, this would be a great thing to use to accomplish redemption. But he had to argue that, that no, God didn't actually decree the events of the crucifixion. I want you to understand that, yes, he absolutely did. Peter says that you, by wicked hands, have taken and crucified him according to the foreknowledge of God. The foreknowledge of God is simply the foreordination of God. right? So God is sovereign over both the accomplishment of salvation and the application of salvation. Um, we will study God's plan of salvation systematically. Systematically. What do I mean by that? Well, with systematic theology, the, the concept is this, and as it applies to redemption, there is no one portion of Scripture that exhaustively details God's plan of salvation. You, you can't turn to one verse, you can't turn to one chapter that just gives you everything that the Bible says about salvation. So the goal of the systematic theologian is to exegete the Bible, look at all of Scripture's testimony, and draw out the teachings of Scripture. Uh, so this study is not a, an expository study. We're not going to be going verse by verse through a book or a section in the Bible. We're going to be looking at the whole testimony of Scripture and what it has to say about this topic of salvation and soteriology. Uh, with a subject as preeminent as the doctrine of salvation, it would be naive of us to think that we will exhaust everything that the Bible has to say about it. We simply, we simply cannot do that. Uh, we will consider, however, a, a very wide variety of scriptures that speak to this subject, and I, I pray that as we do so, you will see the preeminence of this subject in the, the narrative of, of scripture. We're going to study God's plan of salvation in two parts. I've already mentioned these two parts. We have redemption accomplished and redemption applied. Redemption is multifaceted. Uh, the accomplishment of redemption refers to the events in redemptive history that achieved the once-for-all salvation of the elect. Concrete historical events. You can... Open up a history book and you can point to them and you can say, this was an event that's part of the accomplishment of salvation. The application of redemption refers to the manner in which this fully accomplished salvation 
and all of its benefits are experienced in the life of the believer. Let me give you two phrases here. We have the historia salutis. The historia salutis. And uh, you can see in that first word, historia, history, the history of salvation. The historia salutis is what we're talking about when we talk about the accomplishment of salvation. Concrete historical events that objectively accomplish salvation. Namely what? The incarnation of Jesus Christ. The sinless life of Jesus Christ. The death of Jesus Christ. The burial of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father in heaven. Um, what's common in all of those events? They are all accomplished by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Right? So the Historia Salutis refers to those historical events. Redemption was fully accomplished, fully accomplished in the perfect and finished work of Christ. But the question is this. If Jesus fully accomplished salvation, how does God take what Jesus accomplished on the cross and apply it to you? How does he take what Jesus accomplished on the cross and apply it to people that lived 2,000 years after he accomplished it? Or how does he take what Jesus accomplished on the cross and apply it to people who lived 2,000 years before Jesus came? That's the question that we're seeking to answer when we talk about the, uh, the application of redemption. The application of redemption. Uh, you might even logically think, and some have fallen into the, the error of thinking, well, if Jesus fully accomplished my salvation on the cross, then what do I make of being saved in time? Was I always saved? Was I always a Christian? And some have fallen into the error of saying, uh, no, you, you were never lost. You were always saved because Jesus accomplished salvation on the cross. The problem is that kind of logic doesn't square with what we find in Scripture. So, therefore, we must understand and we must study the application of salvation. The application of salvation is, falls under the heading of a theological concept called the Ordo Salutis. Uh, theology is really pesky because you have a mix of Greek and Latin terms. So you have soteriology, Greek, and you have salutis, which is Latin. Uh, but when we talk about the Ordo Salutis, we're talking about the order of salvation. The order of salvation. And we're going to look at that in great detail when we get to the second part of our study and we look at the application of redemption. But the simple answer of how God applies the work of Christ to us is that through the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, God takes the finished work of Christ and he works faith within us 
and he unites us to Christ so that we become the benefactors of his work. Salvation is Trinitarian through and through. You are saved by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the three persons of the Godhead worked in absolute harmony in the salvation of sinners. The Holy Spirit, in effectual calling, unites you to Christ, and all of the benefits of redemption are given to you through that union. Those benefits are um, justification, adoption, repentance, sanctification, glorification, etc. These benefits have both a logical and sometimes a chronological order. And we're going to get into that when we get into the second half of the study. But there is a logical order of salvation. Let me just give you a very simple example. No one is sanctified before they're justified. No one is glorified before they're regenerated. Right. So there's a logical order, and there's sometimes a chronological order. Sometimes there's not a chronological order, and we'll see that as well as we go along. But we refer to this order as the Ordo Salutis. A couple of years ago, I taught... Uh, for a week at a conference on the Ordo Salutis, and it was a very beneficial study, and I wanted to uh, to bring that information to you, and it really helps you to understand what it is that God has done in me as a believer. So uh, let me bring this first session to a close, and in so doing, I want us to take a step back, and I want us to consider the origin or the cause of God's plan of salvation there's a certain sense in which we just simply cannot search the riches of God's grace. We simply cannot come up with a rational, logical explanation of why the the holy God of glory would purpose in eternity to save wretched sinners like you and me. But Scripture does give us warrant to begin to answer this question. Why did God design a plan for the salvation of sinners, and why did he execute that plan in history? And I want to suggest to you that the answer to that plan is found in what is the most famous verse in all of the Bible, John 3.16. We know that first phrase. Let me, let me consider that second, the second half of that verse with you. John 3.16 tells us that God gave his only begotten Son. What is that? That's redemption accomplished. God gave his only begotten son. That's the Historia Salutis. You can look on a timeline and pinpoint the year in which God gave his only begotten son. It's a historical, concrete fact. God the Father sent his son into the world to fully accomplish the salvation of his people by his death, burial, and resurrection. What, what does that verse go on to say? That whoever believes should not perish, but have everlasting life. What is that? That is the application of redemption. God gave his son concrete historical fact. Whosoever believes, individual application of salvation to the believer. This is, uh, this is the ordo salutis. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the believer receives the benefits of redemption. What are those benefits? He doesn't perish. He has everlasting life. And you can look at that 
not perishing and having everlasting life as encompassing justification, adoption, sanctification, regeneration, repentance, faith, the whole nine. He receives everlasting life and all of the blessings that accompany it in this life, in this age, and in the age to come. Now, here's the, here's the cause of this. The cause of the Ordo and Historia Salutis for, that's how the verse begins, for, could be translated because, because God so loved the world, denotes causality. It's God who loved the world. And it denotes the reason. Because God loved the world. Let's end on that note. What a blessed note. Amen. The reason why God saved his people. We're going to spend weeks looking at how God saved his people. And y- you, know, you, can, you, can, you can get so theologically minded uh, about it that you begin to get so bogged down and mentally with all these terms and concepts. You must always remember that the reason why we have the Ordo Salutis to study, the reason why we have the Historia Salutis to study, the reason why we can talk systematically about soteriology is because the God of heaven loved the world. He loved the world and he sent his son into the world and then he sent the spirit into the world to apply the work of his son. The plan of salvation is grounded in the eternal love that God has for his people. The study of redemption accomplished and applied is a study of what God has done for you because he loves you. All right, well, we'll pick up in the meat of this study next time we meet together.